Welcome to the Tactics Meeting. I'm your host, Dan Smiley, and today on episode 22, we're talking to Donnie Wilson, retired CEO and founder of Elastech, inventor of the drum skimmer, winner of the oil spill X Prize, about how he's gone from being in the oil services industry to creating one of the largest oil spill equipment suppliers in the world. A fascinating story, and I'm excited to bring it to you. We'll begin this week's episode with a safety minute, and to help us, we have Amy Does from iWorkWise. Hi, Amy, and welcome to the program. Hi, Dan, thanks. The topic for today is eyewash. Amy, what do employees need to know about eyewash stations? Well, I think the first thing is, where you need them or why you need them, when you need them. So um, it's wherever you could be exposed to a corrosive chemical, um, you need an eye washer, a shower. And the difference, whether you need one or the other, is the amount of chemical you could be exposed to. So what's your likely injury given the chemical in the area? They're supposed to be located within 55 feet of the hazard without any uh, difference in level changes or doors or intervening barricades. So a clear path from the hazard to the eyewash or shower. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing is just pre-positioning, thinking through in your facility and pre-positioning where these things should be locating, located and getting them where you need it. I, they're an interesting piece of equipment because people don't expect that you're ever going to need it. So it's hard to put a lot of thought and money and time into, into placing them. But it's worth it if anyone gets uh, something that's going to cause them to go blind and this seconds matter. And there you have it. Some great advice on eyewash stations that you can use in your next safety meeting. When somebody asks you, hey, do you have a safety topic? You can say Yes. Let's talk about eyewash stations. I heard this great information on the Tactics Meeting podcast. Now let's get to this week's amazing episode. Today with me on the Tactics Meeting, I have Donnie Wilson from Elastech. Uh, Donnie started Elastech decades ago and has grown it into one of the premier worldwide suppliers of oil spill response equipment. Super excited to have you, Donnie. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. So, Donnie, like so many others, you didn't start out in the oil spill world. You were in the oil service industry. How is it that you came to be involved in oil spill response? Yeah, uh, my previous businesses were in the oil field service. So we did fabrications and eventually started the trucking service. Uh, one of my pieces of business was to actually build vacuum trucks for clients. And as I expanded my business, I built my own vacuum trucks and started putting them into in the service, which was easy because I already had clients that were using my existing um, company. And we, of course, vacuum trucks are the first thing to get called to an oil spill. So you need something to recover it and you need something to store it and transport it. So 
Um, I think many vacuum truck owners are reluctant um, suppliers because it sort of disrupts their normal business. Um, it's, it's a great payday, but you know, you've got clients that you're trying to service and you've got this incidents you're dealing with. So from the vacuum trucks perspective or the owner's perspective, you'd love to get it cleaned up and get, get it over with. And, uh, we were called on several oil spills and frustrated by the fact that you couldn't clean it up quickly and you didn't know when you were going to be finished. You didn't know what the weather was going to do to you. Uh, I found a commercial, what I thought was a commercial oil skimmer. It was a weir type that we paid quite a bit of money for. I think back in the day, that would have been 1988. Paid like $5,000 for it. Went to an oil spill with it. Um, I had drivers and supervisors, so I wasn't normally on jobs, but went down to check on my guys. And the, this weir skimmer was in the bushes. And I they didn't like it. They didn't like it. They they said, "Well, this is this is uncontrollable. We get, you know, if there's a lot of oil, you can get oil, but there's that's not very prevalent." So they were doing better with just hoses, and that frustrated me that we spent all this money on something that didn't work. And so I I sort of kept my antennas up on what would what could I do to do different? And we actually went to an oil spill some, I don't know, months later. And one of those situations where you're, you know, there several days, you're picking up a lot of water. You're not sure when you're going to be done. You got customers calling you. So I got all the people in my different companies. So we were just going to go down and mob this little oil spill. It's probably in a 200 by 200 foot swampy area with lots of trees. So you couldn't use boom. And we're just going to knock this thing out and get it over with. So um, it was a long distance to the other side where the oil was present that day. And so I jumped in and I crossed a little creek to get to the oil side. And we had a centrifugal pump there that needed to be primed. And I didn't have a bucket or anything to get water. Uh, so I told one of the guys to throw me a bucket to prime that pump. And luckily, he didn't do a very good job. And the, this white plastic bucket landed in the oil. And when it did, it turned over. And on the outside of the bucket was oil. And it, I stuck, was, it stuck to the bucket. It stuck to the bucket. Obviously, black oil and white plastic, it's very obvious what's happening. So I had a long pair of gloves on. And I just turned the bucket and put my arm up there with the rubber gloves to act like a wiper and then the more i turned it the more oil stuck to the outside and i noticed it was easy to see there was no water and at that moment it occurred to me that i could build a skimmer someday we would call it the drum skimmer they could pick up this oil and i knew that i needed something lightweight it needed to be able to work in shallow water it needed to be able to deal with debris. It needed to be able to pick up the oil and not the water. And so having that in the back of my mind and having a, a fabrication shop and being pretty innovative as we built a lot of custom things for our oil production customers, I started down the road of trying to develop a oil drum skimmer. And it took I'm, me about six months to build one. Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing this cartoon strip of you 
holding this bucket with your eyes wide and a, a light bulb above your head as this as this idea starts to 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 germinate in your mind it's like oh look at this look at this yeah and so um it took me longer to figure out how to make plastic drums um at that time we didn't have the internet we had a, a thing called the thomas registry so it was just a big encyclopedia type books that you could find suppliers so you'd spend a lot of time you know, going through those and faxing or calling suppliers to eventually figure out that I could fabricate my own plastic drums, just like you do metal. You can actually weld plastic with a little um, piece of equipment and eventually figured out how to build a drum skimmer. And we put them on our trucks. And because of the success of those skimmers, uh, and we were looking for something else to do besides oil services. We would love to manufacture something because oil, or especially in oil fields, the services are pretty lumpy. So you can have, you know, oil prices are high, you do well. Oil prices are low, you're scrambling to survive. And so trying to find something to, to manufacture was always uh, important to me. And so as we got more known for having these skimmers then it was easy to figure out that we had something because people liked what they saw we were very successful at it and eventually um, <clears throat> well about that time the another light bulb comes on when there's this oil spill called the exxon valdez happens so i've, I've heard of it invented yeah it's kind of popular so uh I have no idea what there's an oil. I don't even know there is an oil spill industry. Uh, and at that time, I'm not sure there really was one. You know, there would be a real select few that could say they were in the oil spill industry before that spill. And as I were watching everything I could find on TV about that spill, and of course there was a lot, that I could see that our skimmers could have been very successful there based on what I saw on TV. And that got me motivated and and uh, did more homework and um, then we had an opportunity to sell a few of them and then those those clients were part of the oil spill industry did any of your skimmers make it to valdez no at you know at that time we were just an oil spill or oil field service company so i had no idea how to do that i didn't know anybody in the industry i didn't know who to call Obviously, the people that were in that industry were sought after, but we were we we just had basically prototypes that we used to to clean up small scale spills. But and the company Elastec easily, didn't exist at this time. No, I started Elastec in 1990. So after the Exxon Valdez, and then you know Open 90 came, and then now there was a a significant interest in oil spill. There were shows, you know, so there were there was things that were on the horizon that you could actually, you know, take part in. And uh, so we started in 1990, uh, and then by 1991, I sold or closed the other businesses, and we went full-time to manufacturing oil spill equipment. And basically, you know, at that time, it was one product from skimmers, either powered by hydraulic or pneumatic. And that's how we got in the industry. Yep, I had a couple of your skimmers in inventory when I was with the Clean Sound Cooperative. 
So did it matter what kind of plastic was used in manufacturing the drums? It, I mean, how did you it, how did you choose what it was ultimately made out of? Yeah, as we as we fabricated them, we would just use materials that were easy to fabricate. But as we eventually figured out how to mold them and use different components, different types of plastic, then we um, could select certain substrates, uh, certain surface finishes, certain diameters, speeds. So you could get very specific with how they were built and what materials. And as we developed that over the last you know, 40 years or 30 years, we have improved the, the, you know, the um, polyphilic nature of those drums. So are you still improving or you think at, after 40 years, you've kind of landed on this is yeah. the thing. Um, well, we we worked with the University of Santa Barbara, California, and and they had developed some interesting technology on grooved, using groove substrate to pick up oil. And we collaborated with them, and that brought to the market the groove drops. And that is two and three times more um better recovery than smooth. Um, and so that's in our arsenal as well. Um, so I think that between the smooth, that will give you um, heavier oil capability and then to lighter types oils, the grooved, that we probably have sort of the ultimate um, selective skimmer. Now, do the, the grooves simply provide additional adhesion or is it more surface area because of yeah. the grooving. Which is it, or at, is it both? At, fir at first, you think it's just improved, you know, uh, in surface area, more more surface for the oil to adhere to. And we had done some testing with groove drums, but we use very big grooves, like one inch deep and one inch wide. And what the University of Santa Barbara did is they worked with lots of different grooves, lots of different depths. And when we saw their data, we, because of our previous testing, just a few months before, we, we saw they had something very significant. And so the angle of the grooves is very important and the depth. So there's a, a um, there's an effect almost like a vacuum that when the oil adheres to that, so it's not just adhering and so the oil never looks like a groove. It fills horizontally across. So that whole groove is um, full. When we used a one inch deep, one inch wide, you could still see the groove even though the oil had adhered to it. And so uh, and then different groove sizes for different oil types. It can be that specific. And so, um, yeah, very important, the geometry of that, um, of that groove. With the one inch wide, one inch deep groove, what did the scraper look like? It was pretty massive scraper, but we only got, by my memory, like a 25% increase. So it wasn't worth all the, the trouble of fabricating, but with the groove, with the right groove type drum, I think we ended up doubling and in some cases tripling the recovery rate in certain oils. So it was extremely significant in, uh, in you know, uh, improving the recovery rate.
does the scraper clean out the grooves as the drum goes uh-huh. around, or does it just kind of scrape off the top? No, the it's like a comb, so it fits exactly in the groove. So it's a clean scrape. So we're getting almost all the oil every rotation. What's the biggest one you made? Uh, we have we've actually made uh, our standard unit. It's called a Magnum. 200 and it's got four four foot drums or four three foot drums but we've made one with eight drums that was um significant i mean it was like 20 feet long it looked like a boat um uh, but it's it's you'd rather after we did some testing we'd rather have two of the magnum 200s than one of the magnum 400s just because of size and then we've taken that obviously to another level we won the wendy smith um x prize um that was a test it was an onset so we won that million dollar prize by taking those grooves and putting on disc and now our recovery rates are crazy when you use a disc oh right oh that's right so did you did you so you have the drum but do you also invent the disc skimmer Yes, we, well, we, the XPRIZE challenge, the Wendy Smith XPRIZE challenge came on just after the BP spill. And they put out a, a call to build the world's largest, most efficient oil skimmer. And it was the top place was a million dollars. And we had never built an offshore skimmer. Um, we were really busy with building skimmers. And then we had the water-cooled fire boom that was really successful at the BP spill. So we we're busy with that. But We'd already always had the back of our mind to build a grooved disc skimmer, but just was too busy to worry about it. But when the X Prize challenge came, we dusted off some files and said, "Let's give this a shot." And you know, we could put so much more surface area on a disc than a drum. Uh, you know, drum skimmers are awesome because they're so lightweight, shallow draft. You know, inland they're hard to beat, but offshore they sort of get too big to get high recovery rate. So it always sort of been a dream to put them on disc and that X price challenge was the opportunity for us to do so. So you've invented this, this drum skimmer and you don't know who to tell it to. Let's go back and back in time. How did yeah. this, how did you, how did you market or sell or uh, yeah. get into industry that first drum skimmer? Yeah. So, um, when I started last deck, I didn't have any idea how I was going to market something outside our own area. So it was, you know, I had a very successful regional company, but that wasn't going to satisfy the need to manufacture and sell this, you know, across, at least across the world or even in America. So I sought out seven different, uh, high quality business owners and they joined the organization as investors and as board members. And one of those individuals, his name was Bill Harmon, and he'd had a lot of experience marketing his oil services businesses overseas. And so he he came to our team and we approached him and said, you know, I got this neat gadget but don't know what to do with it. And so he, he pitched in and basically got to kick us off. And uh, we went to offshore technology conference in Houston, Texas. That would have been probably 1991. 
and we had a small 10 foot booth and we had a, a little demo skimmer that was picking up oil right in the booth and people were just crowded around the whole time that was before there was environmental shows so if you wanted to do anything in the oil industry you wanted to go to an oil sort of production show and otc was the world's largest and by the time we left there, I think we had six international distributors. Um, and uh, so that kicked off that we had something and then uh, an opportunity to, uh, you know, start marketing it outside just our local region. So I'm assuming that success brings its own problems. Now you've got distributors. What was it like to ramp up production? Well, it wasn't <clears throat> that hard because they were sort of newbies in the oil spill industry. So we were able to keep up with those sort of things. Um, although we did have a significant opportunity in 1992, we were in an oil spill, uh, actually an oil show in Calgary, Canada. And they, a group came by, um, actually three people came by and one of them was from Russia. And he said, does this pick up oil? And I said, yes. He said, we need to buy these. And he looks at his colleagues and says, you know, take his business card. And we're going to buy some of this. He was in the booth maybe five minutes and left. And that it was kind of a weird situation. And later they called me and said, hey, we want to buy these. Um, I flew out to California, met with them and some people from Western Siberia. And Siberia. at that meeting, Siberia. So at that meeting, they basically gave us a verbal order for a half a million dollars worth of oil spill equipment and that was now that one was a challenge to build for so because we you know we were already building for other people but um so um got that order air freighted to siberia um and then we were asked to go and train so that was in 1991 right after the fall of soviet union so russia was you know really a, a frontier when it came to business and we were right at the forefront and went out to Siberia and I think we were there 10 days to pick up 50,000 barrels of oil with three skimmers they had six so they, they, they had a, they had a spill an active spill they had, but they were literally looking for something to help them clean it up we we when we got there we jumped in a helicopter and we flew for an hour and we never lost sight of oil spills it was oil spill oil spill oil spill oil spill. i mean it was just their pipelines were a mess at that time and so they would they were all leaking and so they'd leak all winter and spring had come and there'd just be oil spills all over the place and so the spills that we put skimmers in were acres and acres and acres of spills that wasn't just a little creek or something. So there was, you know, inches of oil on big bodies of water. So it was just nothing. All you had to do was keep diesel fuel and storage <laughs> and you could recover, you know, hundreds and, and thousands of barrels per day. Um, the biggest problem was storage. And before we finished that, project we they ordered another round of equipment and wanted it air freighted there before winter and so we went back and and did more training but the guys were experts by that time because they those skimmers had never shut off the whole summer and uh, in 1992 because of that situation we opened our first overseas office in moscow um and we're there for 11 years so 
we did very, very well in Russia um, supplying equipment and services. Well, that's amazing. You still have an office in, in Moscow? No, we closed it um, early 2000s. Um, just the competition and, and the laws were changing. It was hard to have a, an overseas office there and taxes and other things. And we, by that time, we had a pretty good reputation in other parts of the world. So it was we had lower hanging fruit in other places. But we're still, we still sell equipment there. What else can you tell me about Elastex products? Well, we, I think what was part of our success is that because we came from an oil field service company, we always underpromised and overdelivered. So when we built something for the, for the oil fields, it should work. It's, it's going to be used. It's not going to sit on the shelf. It's not going to be there for contingency. So when we've started building oil spill equipment, we over-promised and over-delivered. So anything you see from LASTEC, when it gives you recovery rates, you can get those recovery rates. And we did a lot of testing. We wanted to make sure when we sold something that it was robust and it was... Um, you know, the customer had confidence in them. So we took those instincts and values from the oil field services, you know, fabrication and services, and we brought that to the oil spill industry. And I think anyone in the industry knows that um, some of the players don't think that way. They, they sort of stack the deck when it comes to performance. They can, they can test it and may, maybe put it in a certain situation that it has those types of recovery rates. But all of our recovery rates you can get. And, we, and so I think that's special about us. Um, we don't build stuff that doesn't work. So we don't build anything for ice. Because if anybody, in my opinion, if anybody tells you you can work in ice, uh, short of burning is probably... Either they know something I don't know, or they haven't tried it. So there's places that we won't try to work and won't try to promise, uh, because when somebody gets our stuff, we want them to be happy with it, and we get a lot of return business, and I think it's been very important to our reputation. So what was the process of developing the disc skimmer for the XPRIZE like? Yeah, so we knew we knew this size and shape of the disc or the grooves, but we'd never put them on the dry, on a disc. So you got to be able to figure out how to cut those and make them, you know, very lightweight. And, and so it takes specially um, equipment to be able to cut those and then build the, build the, um, the grooves or the wipers to do so. And then how do you power them? What's the flotation look like? And so we did a lot of testing we only had 90 days to build that piece of equipment from the time that we were given authority to be in the X prize to have a product ready. What kind of recovery so, rate were you looking for in order to, in order to qualify uh, and ultimately to win? 2,500 was the, the uh, number to shoot at. So Barrels per day? No, 2,500 gallons a minute. A minute. Okay with 70 gallon or 70% efficiency. So they took 
they sort of took what the best skimmers in the market were and doubled those and said, if you can get there, that must be amazing. So when we started designing our skimmer, we felt like there was no way to test anything this big. I mean, it was the, you had to go to the onset tank and, and even the pumps to pump 2,500 gallons of fluid is significant, not, not counting how you're going to recover it. So we we basically turned our entire factory into build a you know award-winning skimmer, and thank goodness that we had all the infrastructure because we only had 90 days to do it. And so we built a bank of of disk, and I think uh, if my memory serves me correctly, every bank had 16 disk. And so all that we could do was test the 16 disk in a in a small pool, a small tank that we had. And we could sort of get an idea of recovery rate, but we knew it was a lot, but we couldn't put our finger on it. And so we just said, well, we're not going to shoot for 2,500. We're going to shoot for 5,000. So even if we miss it by half, we're still in the running. And when I brought this to my board of directors to say, we're going to compete they're very senior people, most of them not in our industry said, you are you just you just come off the BP spill. We're building more fire booms than anyone in the world. You're, we are at the top of our game. We are busy as all get out, and you want to enter a test that you're not sure that the skimmer is actually going to work. And if you fail, what's that going to do to a reputation that we're quite proud of? And I said, well, we're not going to fail, and we're going to shoot for double that. That's pretty confident. Well, I think that's probably been the reason that we've, you know, tried what we've done to even get into the industry. So we've got a pretty neat engineering team and they sit down and, and we actually got um, people from outside to help us design it. And so we shot for twice that and built the skimmer. It, I mean, the skimmer alone is a semi load. It's huge. Um, and there's videos if you if you want to search Elastec X Prize, you'll see um, videos of that skimmer working. But the um, and we knew we'd do well. But when we got to the tank, there was you get two days of testing. One is just the test, and the next day is the real deal. And so they and would give the you product results. that was being used for the test. Um, I don't remember. It was a, it was sort of a medium uh, viscosity oil. Um, okay. I can't remember the brand, but it's a very popular oil they use on at the Elmset facility. And um, so we got in one run, we got over four thousand gallons a minute, and we were like, "That's significant." I mean, that's that's amazing that we can get that. So they let you fine tune for one day and then the next day you do your test and they don't give you the results. So you just hoping that you got everything dialed in and that you didn't have any mistakes and you don't have any hoses blow off or, you know, something weird doesn't happen. And uh, we actually had to have three power units to operate the system. So we had one power unit just to run the disk and uh, the impellers that would pull the fluid through. And then we had another power unit to run one pump and another power unit to run another pump. 
because there's just so much going on with this system. So starting all three power units at the same time and catching this all in cadence with when the, you know, when their um, towers run down the tank was uh, a bit of a, a combination that had to be mastered and uh, he pulled it off. And so eventually it was crazy because there was 10 teams that were chosen and there's videos for all this. Um, and they didn't get results to any of them until like another 90 days. And then they called everybody to a big uh, press release in uh, New York and announced the news, you know, basically in front of everybody, no one knowing how well they did or how well anyone else. So it was a very suspense-filled <laughs> event. And so they, they started off with third place, which was a $100,000 um, award. And there was no one qualified for that. Really? Why, why? Yeah. No one got, there was only two companies that exceeded 2,500 gallons. Oh. So, well, when there was no third place, we knew that we were first or second because we did, we did uh, we knew we at least met the 2,500 gallons. And then they announced the second place, uh, which was, they, they exceeded it by like 100 gallons. It was 2,600 gallons. And then they announced ours. They announced us as a winner, first place winner, million dollar prize. And I, I, I think the recovery rate was 4,600 gallons at like 80% efficiency or something like that. And so that was incredible to have won that. And of course that, uh, you know, really helped our reputation too, that we got this amazing fire boom that did really well at BP. And now we've got a unique skimmer that's high capacity. And so a pretty nice place to be starting from the oil field services company in Illinois in 1990, a thousand miles from the nearest ocean. So once you won the prize and this had, proven that the technology worked in the onset tank under i guess we could call those laboratory conditions right what yeah. then did you have to do to make this uh, a product that even responders like me can put in the water and and turn on i mean did you stick right. with the triple power packs did you go back and say all right now yeah. how do we make this responder proof yeah. firefighter proof yeah, commercially available. So exactly. we met, built, we built a uh, uh, 600 gallon unit that's small enough to be handled in an offshore vessel. So um, I think we called it the X150, 150 cubic meters per hour. And so we started marketing that product and sold several of those Did, pretty uh, quick. Is the X from X Prize that what you use? Yes. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, and there's some videos. There's videos on on the X skimmer, what we did, what the development we did later, um, and then we started marketing those. Sold, I don't know, half a dozen of them pretty quick, and then that would have been 2000. By the time we got that commercially available, it would have been 2014, if I'm not mistaken, and then. You know, oil prices went down and currency devalued, and and so you know the the big op opportunities are in expiration. You know, after you get past the expiration part and production part, you most likely already have equipment. 
So our multi-million dollar opportunities, when oil prices go down, they sort of disappear because nobody's buying huge amounts of equipment because if you're in that, if you have that potential, you should have already had that equipment. And so there wasn't a great need for this type of equipment. And uh, so we've been selling units along, but it's it hasn't been what we thought it would be just because that's, you know, our industry is sort of in a slump right now, especially if you're an American manufacturer trying to sell over ski seas, our prices are a bit high because of the strong dollar. So we are selling them, but um, it didn't go as, as well as we thought, but, um, you know, everything has its life cycle. Yeah, it'll come back. Oil prices are yeah. up a little bit, yeah. right? And yeah. Yeah. as people come out of the pandemic and start driving and flying and right. everything. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see, you know, everyone in this industry knows the same cycle. So we'll see that happen for sure. So you're no longer in the day-to-day -day operations of Elastech. You've moved on to some uh, some new, pretty exciting projects. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. Um, so I retired in 2015 and uh, was ready for a change. I would started the company in 1990. So after you know three decades or nearly three decades, it was sort of time to do something else. And I had partners that were capable of running it. And so I got involved in nonprofits and actually um, led a nonprofit to keep, teach high school seniors entrepreneurship um, for four years. And so that's probably been more the most rewarding thing I've ever done is to work with youth and, and bring my entrepreneurial skills, uh, you know, to, to bear on helping others. And, and I took over a nonprofit that was really a startup. And there was good, there was a good product, you might say, but there wasn't any infrastructure. So, um, his unfortunate situation, the um, executive director came down with pancreatic cancer. I was on the board, and um, the board asked me to take over running the operation, and I did, and basically um, put infrastructure in place and doubled the size of the organization. I'm still on the board, still love what I was doing there, but uh, so I did that for a few years. And now I serve on various boards and do a lot of mentoring for entrepreneurs, both from our program and just, you know, entrepreneurs that I sort of bump into. So I typically have, I'm averaging probably a mentoring call per day. And so spend a lot of time with that, um, have a lot of hobbies, travel, boating is big for me. And um, so, yeah, that's, and spending a lot of time with my adult age kids and uh, fortunate that they still hang out. They still like to hang out with dad. So it's, uh, it's not a bad place to be right now. Well, that's exciting. So in this men in this uh, entrepreneurial mentorship program for high school students, uh, what are some of the key pieces of advice that you give to people who think they want to st start a business? Uh -huh. So the program is a, it's every day before school. And uh, basically we have to get um, local business owners involved to support it. And then we get local education. And so our, our job is to sort of build the program and teach it to them. But basically we're teaching kids how to start and run their own business. 
And so um, I think what's interesting is that any anyone that's had their own business or worked on the fringes realize that you need a big skill set, a big toolbox to run a business. You gotta you gotta have good communication skills. You gotta be organized. You gotta understand paperwork and bookkeeping and you know product development and pricing and and so what we found when we're working with the youth is about 50% of those still want to do their business, even though the program's over after their senior year in school. And we get such great feedback on the life lessons that they've learned that, you know, you gotta, you gotta be willing to get outside your comfort zone and go see people and talk to people. And, and so part of our program is you get, Per week, you do two business visits. The classes go to a local business and do a tour. And then uh, one day a week, you have an outside speaker comes in and talks about their entrepreneurial journey. And then the other day is a class day for them to figure out what they're going to do you know, in their class business and ultimately in their business. And so my takeaways from what I, I see from the youth, and we have about 600 kids in our program this year, and uh, we're pulling out of almost 300 high schools, is that um, the youth today is really not scared of anything, but they have very little experience outside sort of the norm. So very, very proficient in in electronics, but personal communications is a bit of a problem for them. And so getting them outside their comfort zone and getting them to to um, converse with others and explore opportunities is a bit of a challenge. And I wouldn't say that that's not unusual for anybody. So anyone that's, you know, entrepreneurial in mindset in their older years is going to have the same challenges. And so what we tell our kids when they're looking to, to start their business and they want to, you know, obviously they want to be successful. I, I ask them, what do you really enjoy doing? Let's say it's baseball cards. What really upsets you about baseball cards when you're collecting them? Is it the way they're stored? Is it the way they're sold? Is it the way they're um, handled? Because if you really enjoy it and you've done your 10,000 hours, you're an expert. So what do you know that you can be an expert at that you can solve a problem? So in my business, the reason I'm successful with Elastic is I solved a problem. I solved my problem, but I didn't realize I solved maybe a global problem. You know, inland water spills, something simple, easy to use, lightweight, not very expensive, can build with debris, was the whole industry's problem. So having the mindset to say, I need to get outside my region with this product and show it to others to see if I've got something ultimately worked. So I would suggest that someone that wants to take that entrepreneurial journey, if you have if you don't have a great idea, then what are you really good at? What do you have some sort of expertise and what problem can you solve? So when I'm talking to our kids, because I do speaking to their classes, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was trying to figure out how to you know, communicate on a college campus. That's how Facebook started. He was solving a problem and he solved a problem that was global. 
that people didn't even know they had. So my advice on the entrepreneurial journey is solve problems, bring value, and what do you know a lot about? And if you're not an expert in that, then you really need to be, or you really won't know, you know, how to accomplish the goal. I think that's the advice I'd give. So this is a nonprofit. Are you uh, looking for support? Do you want to give some contact information where people who are interested in supporting your efforts can contact you? Yeah. So my email address for, I'll give you my personal one. It's easier. So it's Donnie Wilson, Donnie, IE, uh, 360 at gmail.com. And um, the organization I'm with is called Midland Institute for Entrepreneurship. And we have a website there. And so anyone would, that would like to bring a program like this to their community could reach out to me and um, touch base. And so right now we're in six states, um, mostly the Midwest, and just growing by organic um, opportunities. So just basically word of mouth. Excellent. Well, Donnie Wilson, founder of Alas Tech, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Meeting. If you need help setting up your virtual command post, if you're trying to organize a big emergency response drill, if you need incident management team support or qualified individual services, contact me, Dan Smiley, with Gallagher Marine Systems. My phone number is 206-495-3805 or email me dsmiley at chgms.com.